The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome everyone to our show this afternoon. We have a great topic. We're going to be talking with Dr. Candace McDaniel about um, anti-aging treatments and recovery from addiction. And let me begin by introducing Dr. McDaniel, who is a licensed osteopathic physician in both Oklahoma and Texas. Dr. McDaniel received her medical degree from Oklahoma State University in 1996. She also holds a doctorate degree in education from the University of Tulsa, a master's degree in psychology from Texas Christian University, a bachelor's degree in psychology from Southern Methodist University, a bachelor's degree in biology from Northeastern State University in Oklahoma, an Associate of Science degree in Chemistry from Tulsa County College. Dr. McDaniel began her own addiction medicine and family practice clinic in 2003. It's called the Anti-Aging and Longevity Center of Texas. The practice is a state and federally accredited comprehensive substance abuse treatment center. Dr. McDaniel has served as medical director and program physician for the Denton Brentwood Addiction Clinic and also served as the backup physician for two Brentwood clinics in Fort Worth. Fort Worth, Texas, from 2000 to 2002. Dr. McDaniel trained as an addiction medicine program physician under J. Thomas uh, Pate, thanks, in his Dallas clinic and served as a backup physician in, in his San Antonio clinics from 1998 and through 2003. And somewhere in the middle of all of this, Dr. McDaniel has raised four grown children, and she lives on a five-acre farm with horses, dogs, cats, goats, Birds and her husband, Dr. Reg McDaniel. So welcome, Dr. McDaniel. Thank you. It's great to be here, Mary. Oh, thank you for taking the time. What an interesting um, journey you've had. Um, Been pretty busy these last few years. <laughs> I guess, I guess. Um, could we begin by just, um, I would just like to ask you, as a physician, how did you get interested in the treatment of addiction? Well, it started back uh, when I was an internal medicine resident uh, working the ICU in uh, Fort Worth Hospital, and I saw how patients that had um, alcohol problems and glue-sniffing problems uh, and other, you know, cocaine, uh, heroin problems, how they were treated uh, by my attendings in the uh, intensive care unit and quite honestly, I was really rather appalled. But that didn't really hit home until uh, I was in a group of one of seven internal residents, and one of our own uh, residents that was essentially, um, you know, working with me there in the program, uh, he had a relapse to addiction, and he was sent to Atlanta for drug addiction treatment, as many physicians are uh, when this occurs, but... Uh, I was saddened to find out that they told him that, well, he could do his uh, stint, his recovery, and 
you know, after he had done his four months, he could come back into the program. And then shortly thereafter, they told us that, no, uh, he was not going to be coming back and that he would not be a practicing physician. And so I thought, you know, there's something wrong with the way we are addressing this problem, both with patients and professionals. And so I've taken an interest in uh, trying to correct that problem on both fronts. Well, you know, it's interesting because um, I'm also a registered nurse, and when I first trained, um, did my nursing training in the early 70s, it was appalling at how people who came in for addiction treatment were treated, and um, they really were treated as second-class citizens. And when I got out of nursing school, I worked in the operating room, and, you know, you can tell usually how much someone drinks by the amount of sodium pentothal and anesthesia it takes to knock them out. And people would always comment on, boy, this person's a real drinker, but nobody would ever take that out of the OR and address it with them. Right. That 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 continues to be a problem today, and uh, especially in the area of alcohol abuse. You know, it is a legal drug, and so um, our society, for the most part, we kind of tend to, you know, uh, fuss at the problem drinker and confront them about how much they're drinking and um, but it doesn't it doesn't work well, and uh, ignoring the problem just allows it to really grow and fester. And there are good treatments for alcoholism and other drug abuse, which I'm sure we'll probably talk about a little bit later. But this problem can be treated. But first, you have to recognize that there is a problem, and then begin to address it, either with medical treatment, with counseling and work through those issues. Well, and I think historically the medical profession has had a difficult time identifying alcoholism or other um, substance use disorders. They'll identify the, the gastritis or um, the inflamed esophagus or the cardiac arrhythmias, but they never seem to be able to put the picture together with the right outcome. That's very true, and... Um... You know, again, just, you know, unfortunately, there's so many times, I mean, if we look at our gross national product, how many days of missed work we have due to hangovers or, you know, drinking episodes or drug drug binges or whatever. So it's a huge cost, and it's a huge problem. One in every three homes in America has a drug or alcohol problem under its roof. And how, do you know how that compares with other chronic illnesses in terms of um, how many folks have diabetes or um, asthma? It's, or? It's, it's probably about the fourth, um, right around the fourth leading uh, cause of uh, disability and um, morbidity and mortality due to both uh, the permanent health injuries from uh, catching viruses such as hepatitis C um, and from, you know, just having uh, cirrhosis of the liver and other, you know, chronic complications of drug and alcohol abuse. Um, Historically, um, we've kind of seen addiction more as a moral issue, um, the, you know, just say no um, public 
media blitz that we had in the 80s. I'm wondering from a historical perspective if you could talk a little bit about um, how we have treated addiction. Well, the um, programs like, um, you know, uh, awareness of drugs and alcohol, those are good, and I, I completely think that those are good at the, at the right educational level uh, as a means of prevention. But many people commonly think that alcohol and, you know, substance abuse problems are a willpower issue. If you just have more willpower, you could say no. People really don't understand that particularly the opiate class of drugs, which is like your pain pills such as Vicodin and Lortab, Narco, Hydrocodone, uh, and your, your other opiates, heroin, morphine, Oxycontin, that, that those drugs, you do become physically dependent on them such that when the drug is withdrawn, that you have signs and symptoms of physical withdrawal. And actually other drugs also have signs and symptoms as well, uh, cocaine, methamphetamine, and alcohol. Um, you know, you do, you do see symptoms of the, of the drug abuse, and while some of the other drugs um, may have, you know, they have milder effects, there still are components of addiction present, which is why most people need both a medically assisted treatment format and intensive counseling to understand the origins of their addiction. For many people, there is a genetic predisposition to addiction. For example, if you have had uh, either alcohol or drug or even major psychological problems such as depression or schizophrenia or bipolar, if you have had those in your family history on either side of your family tree the last three generations, you are predisposed, you carry this predisposition to become addicted, and then all it takes is the environmental exposure, and those people will very quickly uh, become addicted and have drug problems. But also there's, there's other factors that figure in from an environmental standpoint, and that would be at what age does a person start with drugs. And I can tell you that people that start very early, I've, I've had patients that have started as early as nine years old uh, with uh, drug problems, I mean drug abuse problems, which is just hard, hard to fathom. Uh, but 9 to 13, when I see drug abuse in a person of that age, you can be sure that they most likely are going to have quite a difficult time and perhaps struggle with uh, alcohol and drug issues, usually until their late 40s, when uh, there is some maturation of the brain uh, during those uh, middle to late 40s, which results in uh, some better, uh, you know, impulse control and self-control and those sorts of things. And those that start at, uh, say, in the late teens, you know, 15 to 19, those people, what happens is they become, they, they, their emotional growth is stunted, usually associated with the drug abuse. And so then as those people enter their 20s, you know, you have a person who's in their 20s and, and who, you know, uh, more self-control is expected, yet emotionally they're really functioning at a much younger level 
And as a result, sometimes the individuals that are in their late teens through the 20s present some of the most challenging addiction problems to deal with. And, you know, there's probably a reason why the insurance companies, you know, that at 16, you know, you, you, they'll barely let you drive, and if you're a male, you know, they're really monitoring you, and then when you turn 21, you know, your, your health insurance, I mean, your car insurance is less expensive, and then usually by the age of 25, you know, you're not uh, separated out for any special fees or conditions or whatever. So the insurance companies already have the statistics, you know, on particularly the males. And, and I would say that males, uh, at least in my clinic, it's, it's uh, two males for every female. So it is about a two-to-one uh, type disease. On the, and I would say that there are, there are many males that introduce the females to the drugs and uh, get them involved, but many more males find them on their own. And we'll be right back um, after this commercial break to talk more with Dr. McDaniel about anti-aging and addiction. We'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure, what's up? Um, there's this girl I kind of like. Well, if there's one thing I know, it's women. Really? Well, they didn't call me velvet for nothing. I don't get it. Smooth. I was smooth. Oh, anyway, it's easy. You just got to impress her. Show her how strong you are. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? I don't know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt, if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, Ugh! Try it. Ugh! Ugh! <laughs> See, there you go. And you should dress up. Start wearing a shirt and tie. I'll look like a dork. No, you'll look successful. Okay. And finally, you can start using my cologne. <laughs> the ladies love it, so don't be shy. Splash it on. Thanks, Dad. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To find out how you can adopt, please visit our website at adoptuskids.org or call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Um, before going to break, we were talking with Dr. McDaniel about prevalence of addiction and how it, it um, manifests itself. And, you know, it's, I think it's really important for everyone to understand that um, 
not only is it a biological disease, but when Dr. McDaniel was talking about the environment and the genetics, that that's also a huge part of the treatment for addiction and that if you if you start using substances when you're nine years old, chances are people in your family are using them as well. So it really kind of complicates the recovery process, and that's why counseling is so important. Having said that, we have also in the last 10 years had an opportunity to have some real medical advancements in terms of the treatment, the medical, medical-assisted medical treatment for addiction. And um, I'd like to ask Dr. McDaniel to talk a little bit about um, various forms of medical treatment for addiction, Dr. McDaniel. Sure. Thank you, Mary. Well, methadone is the old gold standard for heroin or other opiate abuse such as you know, Oxycontin, pain pills, and that sort of thing. And uh, while it works very well, is very safe when uh, you know taken as prescribed and uh, is basically utilized in a very uh, controlled environment. Um, there are newer medications uh, which can play a role, and they go a long way in helping the patient maintain their autonomy, uh, not have to be so tied to coming to the clinic every day, and they give the they give the patient a lot more uh, personal freedom. Uh, they are able to uh, seek employment, and um, with the Suboxone medication, or buprenorphine is the generic name, um, that actually does not show up on a most drug screens has to be tested specifically for. So many individuals find that it's easier for them to gain employment. And the Suboxone, while it is a little bit more expensive, it has many other benefits. Both of the medications, both methadone and Suboxone, really function as antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications, mood stabilizers, and so they really kind of help unscramble the brain chemistry that has been altered by the use of the drugs. They serve, they serve a great role in that they fill the receptor, which is what causes the person to have their craving, actually the mu receptors in the brain, at least for the opiate problems. And by they fill the receptor, and yet they allow the individual to be fully functional. That is, they can hold down a job, uh, be gainfully employed, be a contributing member of society, earn a livelihood to support themselves and their family. So these actually, these medications actually do both a service to the individual and to the larger community. Because when a person has a drug habit, and probably the average drug habit in the United States is about 50 to $100 per day, while treatment costs from about 6 to $10 a day. And what happens is when the drugs get expensive or when a, as a person's habit increases beyond a, a point that they can afford in their own, with their own resources that they have at hand, uh, many times that leads to criminal behavior such as dealing drugs, uh, stealing, theft, uh, prostitution, uh, that sort of thing. So it's not desirable to have for society to have persons that are severely afflicted with drug problems because it comes at too great of a cost 
for the individual and their family and the people in their environment uh, as well as our society. So medications are very helpful, and there are a variety of medications really to treat all of the addictions. There's also been some very new developments with alcoholism with the use of naltrexone. And naltrexone is an opiate antagonist and blocks the receptors so that the individual can drink, but they don't get the effects of the alcohol because it's blocked from entering the receptor and the behavior usually falls off quite dramatically. In my own personal experience, I've seen people uh, within the first week be able to reduce their drinking by 50%, and by the third week uh, have an 80% reduction in their drinking behavior. And uh, that's just a great health benefit uh, to the individual um, as well as their loved ones. So the drugs are effective. And you'll notice that I said that, uh, interestingly enough, an opiate blocker somehow affects alcoholism. Well, many people don't know, but when you drink alcohol to excess such that you overwhelm the liver, it makes morphine-like intermediates that land in the opiate receptor. So it's actually an indirect way of forcing the body to put opiates in the opiate receptor. And this is really what we call alcoholism. And there are other things that, you know, the body itself uh, it produces endorphins or endogenous morphines and can be pressed to do so. And they really fall on a continuum such that, uh, you know, a, a nice meal, a vacation, uh, petting your dog, uh, those things are um, pleasurable and, and sort of reinforcing and then it kind of moves over into uh, perhaps like a runner's high, uh, you know, shopping, going into shoplifting. So these, these things are on a continuum. And then as you get more on the other end, you've got other thrill-seeking behaviors which release endorphins and are sort of uh, addicting. Uh, gambling, horse betting, gang violence. Uh, all those things kind of uh, fall into producing endorphins, and yet they're perceived by society as being negative, unwanted behaviors because they are either harmful to the individual or to society or both. So this uh, continuum is uh, what you really have to look at, and we have to work to get people to be content with the natural production of endorphins and not chemically altering them themselves. And we know that when people have had long periods of uh, substance abuse or alcoholism, that the, the brain's ability to produce those um, types of neurotransmitters has been depressed. So for some people, the recovery can, be a, can take a long time. Yes, it can. That's a very good point. In fact, I will tell you that people who abuse opiates they actually suffer more pain than people who are naive to opiates. And so the, those persons who don't use opiates, if they cut their finger, they're less likely to notice it, whereas in the person that has a, a drug problem is dependent on opiates, they, the, the pain to them is exaggerated, and these are people that you see that have built up high levels of tolerance to opiates. 
so it's almost like you know uh you know you kind of enjoy you know getting away from the pain but in the end it may be that the pain you know enjoys you or something it's it's kind of strange how that works and it's true the brain the brain chemistry does have to be rebalanced so i i would tell you that about half of my patients uh the methadone or suboxone is enough of its own to balance that brain chemistry but with the other 50%, I probably have um, maybe 20% that need an antidepressant, 20% that need an anti-anxiety medication, and about 10% that actually need a sleep medication to help them sleep. So it does disrupt, you know, those, you know, parts of the brain and that brain chemistry that's responsible for, you know, pain and pleasure you know, happiness and depression and sleep and rest and states of wakefulness. You know, you're bringing up a lot of um, certainly what we see in the post-acute withdrawal period. And I know that for a lot of people who have substance use disorders, oftentimes they go to physicians who don't understand really what it is that they need. You know, they may throw at them antidepressants, sleeping medications, and benzodiazepines all in one fell swoop to try to combat what they're um, just kind of the brain rebalancing itself. And I'm, how do you determine, how do you assess who needs a sleeping medication? If 10% of the people need it, we know that the majority of people that go to doctors get prescribed sleep, sleeping medication just when they say they're having trouble sleeping. So, so how do you assess that? Well, part of it is making sure that they're on an adequate dose of opiate replacement, for example and that they're also not doing stimulants. I mean, there's, there is a, a, a subgroup of people that want stimulants to get up and then need downers to go to sleep. They sort of get in a, you know, upper-downer uh, type cycle. So once we've got them, you know, uh, balanced as far as uh, the, either the drug withdrawal or, uh, the, you know, the um, uh, opiate replacement, or whatever, then if they still are, you know, not having adequate sleep, and actually I will just tell you that people that have opiate abuse problems, the whole group doesn't sleep well. So you do kind of have to, you know, redefine, you know, what's adequate sleep. And so really we're looking for, you know, whereas in a normal, you know, uh, population, you're really hoping, you know, average of eight, and probably, you know, 7 to 10 is, you know, kind of desired, and, of course, more than that for a younger person um, and less, actually, for an older person. But really, if they're not getting at least five or six hours of sleep, that itself can kind of contribute to, you know, anxiety and stress and irritability and poor coping skills and, you know, irrational behavior and that sorts of thing. So... We, we do need to make sure that they're uh, getting adequate sleep. And we do talk, we have sleep tea uh, that we offer, so we try that first. Let's try something natural and see if that can be of benefit. And amazingly, it helps many, many people, and it's very inexpensive. You know, you get two tea bags for 25 cents. Uh, so it becomes, uh, you know, very affordable, and it's sort of healthy. You know, it's kind of a healthy alternative rather than to getting into another prescription drug. But, you know, there are patients that do require that, 
and, and I would say another thing is that it's you know it is important to these people they have to have counseling. They have to identify what their triggers are that not only lead them, you know, that lead them back to substance abuse or to a relapse. Uh, they have to work on their coping skills. They don't, as a rule, cope with the uh, daily hassles of life or the average stressors they don't deal with well. And then if they have, you know, one of those big stressors, you know, divorce or, you know, death in the family or something like that, um, and, and typically at, at holidays are, are worse times because people have stress related to relating to their families and interacting with their family members. So uh, it's common to see people fall off the bandwagon, you know, uh, in numbers between Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's. Be right back. Talk with Dr. McDaniel. If you have any questions, please give us a call. We'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. This is an important programming note from the Voice America Women's Channel. The Catherine Zox Show is moving. Our new address is Voice America, and we will be heard on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, starting Wednesday, November 19th. All of the archives will still be available through Catherine's Boombox Player. Remember, tune in to the Catherine Zox Show on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, beginning on Wednesday, November 19th, on Voice America's flagship Voice America Channel. Hey, Jack, you got a sec? Yeah, sure, come on in. Yeah, I was wondering if you... Jack, your hair's on fire. Yeah, yeah, I know. I, I just need to finish this sales report, and then I'll probably... Oh, I don't know, let me lie down for a bit. But I'm, I'm sure it'll go away. But the flames are getting bigger. Sh- shouldn't I... Your hair, there's so much fire. No, 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 I'll be fine. What can I help you with? Oh, dear. Well, at least we know the sprinkler system works. You wouldn't ignore this, so why ignore the signs of a stroke? If you or someone you know suddenly experiences numbness of the face, arm, or leg, or sudden trouble speaking, seeing, or walking, don't wait to get help. Call 911 right away, because time lost is brain lost. To find out more, visit www.strokeassociation.org or call 1-888-4-STROKE. This message brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. 
back, everyone. If you have any questions for Dr. McDaniel, please give us a call. Um, one of the things that we had talked about in our earlier segment was the uh, the fact that um, we sometimes, with with different types of treatment, we can see a decrease in a person's consumption of alcohol and an improvement in their functioning while they haven't yet achieved abstinence. And I know this is where our profession is very... Um, divided, that um, is abstinence the only acceptable clinical outcome, or as you were talking earlier about continuums, is is effective treatment for addictive disorders on a continuum with abstinence being the ultimate goal. I'm wondering what your thoughts are. I know this is a kind of a charged subject for a lot of people, but... um... Well, I, I do think that we have to be realistic. And I must tell you that when I, um, let's see, I recently had a patient come in, uh, I think she was drinking um, a fifth of vodka a day and had been for 12 years daily. And, um, you know, actually, originally my goal for her was really to just get her drinking less because it was, I mean, she was injuring herself and, um you know, she was, uh, you know, physically ill from all the alcohol that she was drinking, couldn't eat, losing weight, uh, having some of those uh, side effects and everything. Um, and, you know, we actually, on her own, when she came into the clinic, you know, she had made up her mind that she was, you know, she didn't care, you know, she already suffered so much, she didn't care, and she just highly, highly motivated, and and since then, uh, she has not had another drink. And we did uh, get her through that. She does come in weekly for counseling, and she is on a variety of uh, some medications that uh, have helped to restore her brain chemistry and make her normally and really very fully functioning now. So... Uh, you know, the complete abstinence is certainly a goal for every patient, and I don't think it matters, you know, um, what the addiction is, whether you're talking about alcohol or, you know, cigarettes or, or what it might be. Of course, abstinence is the goal. But I must tell you, for some people, a first goal is a reduction in the behavior. So if I have a person that's smoking three or four packs of cigarettes a day, which actually I have had, and I can get them down to between five and ten cigarettes a day, I do consider that very definite reduction. And if I can get that person that's drinking 24 beers a day, you know, down to one or two beers a day, I consider that harm reduction. And that, that is a good goal uh, for, for the individuals. Many times when they have success coming down to a normal level, they will, of their own accord, go ahead and get completely off of the drugs, off of the alcohol, off of the cigarettes or whatever. But I, you know, don't think, I think you can have success without having complete abstinence reached in every case. And, you know, I do have patients that have chronic pain issues and while they became dependent on opiate medications and their control with opiate medications, 
I don't really consider treatment failure if they have to take, you know, one or maybe two uh, pain pills or other medications to control breakthrough pain. It's really abuse, abuse of the body, abuse of the drug. That's what you want to stop. But, of course, ideally, if you can reach a totally abstinent state, that's great. But myself, I find in my practice about two-thirds of my patients are maintenance, and then I have about uh, that remaining third, a third of people will get completely clean, uh, you know, detox, stay off, and stay clean for five years uh, so far as we're tracking them. So about, you know, we do have about 33% then of our patients who choose to try to uh, reach an abstinent state that are successful in achieving their goals. But not every patient sets that as a goal for themselves. And we consider that if they're, you know, not abusing drugs, um, then they are achieving some degree of sobriety. You had mentioned earlier that you see twice as many men as women in your clinic, and do you have any idea why that is? Well, I, I guess you make a lot of, you know, conjecture about what it might be. One thing is that I think women tend to be a little bit more family-oriented. They're better communicators. You know, they, they talk more, uh, you know, so they're more interactive, they're more verbal, and so I think that probably women, um, you know, stay connected a little bit better perhaps than the men. And it would seem that the males uh, tend to be uh, somewhat perhaps more aloof. Um, they tend to a lot of times... Uh, either have high expectations of themselves or they find that their environment has high expectations of them which they are not able to deliver. And somehow it would seem that the men, although, you know, I do, I would probably say uh, half of the men are married. I would say the other half uh, have relationships and then the other half, the other I guess would be quarter, that they're more of the loner type. So I do think that when people get involved in the drugs, it, what it does is it pulls your attention and your focus inward. And so people that are out there in your environment are actually, they're not getting much of the, the patient because the patient is so caught up in, you know, getting the money to get with the dealer, to get the drugs, and they're on a little treadmill. And so they really have very little of their time, you know, when they're, you know, uh, not too high or not too sick or not too stressed about getting their medication. They have really a very narrow window in which to interact with their significant others and their family and their children or whatever. So um, that is really part you know, part of the problem is that the nature of drug abuse is an inward self kind of phenomenon where is in our society we are supposed to be focused on 
taking care and serving and loving other people. It's external rather than internal. So I think it's a, it's more of a direction of the attention than anything else. Um, we've talked a little bit in our last segment about uh, medication and how it can assist in the treatment of addiction. You've also been talking about counseling a fair amount. And um, what are the types of counseling that you see to be effective? Well, um, some of the main goals, I suppose, that I have, you know, I'm, I know all of our counselors, they're very uh, quick to identify what each individual patient's knowledge base is, what their skills are, what their attitudes are. We also uh, commonly will uh, have the patient do Beck depression inventories or bipolar inventories, you know, in an effort to try to find out what difficulties the patient have. Is it, uh, is it stress management problems? Is it coping skills? Is it relationship skills? Um, are they, do, you know, are they able to interact with their families and their significant others? And, and what about their marital partner when they're married? And their children as well. And we, we also do talk to them about since the, the patient, obviously, if they're there at the clinic, they have a drug problem of one sort or another. Have they, in an age appropriate to the child or, you know, teenager manner, discussed the issues of drug abuse or alcohol abuse and how in their genetic background they're going to be particularly challenged in dealing with drugs or alcohol? Uh, and this is something we stress. You cannot stick your head in the sand uh, on this issue because uh, it's, Forewarned is forearmed. They're going to have, the kids are going to have enough stress, but if they already know, you know, just like, you know, a family that has diabetes, they already know that, you know, they really need to watch those sugars and watch those starches and not be pushing the envelope on their diet uh, because their family doesn't have good genes for that uh, sort of behavior. So uh, likewise, these the, the children and the parents, and the significant others, they all have to work together to make sure that uh, all the family members are aware and can be a part, you know, part of the solution uh, from future problems and, and in prevention as well. I think that, um, as with most chronic illnesses, that there are multiple things that people need to do in order to effectively treat them. You, we've mentioned diabetes a couple times that requires exercise and um, diet and other types of, of treatment besides medication. And when we come back, we'll talk with Dr. McDaniel about some alternative types of treatment for substance use disorders and also some outcomes. And we'll be right back. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure. There's this girl I kind of like. Say no more. You just have to impress her. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? You know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, oh! Uh. There you go. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt U.S. Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Ever seen a hornet, Shelly? No, ma'am. Well, you're five. What are you waiting for? They've built a nest outside your window. See? No. You will when you climb 15 feet up this ladder to get rid of them. Take this insecticide and broom (laughs) and send those stinging meanies packing. What if I fall? I could get hurt. Oh, you know about gravity already. You're so smart. Go, 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 go. The hornets are waiting. treat your child like an adult. So why put them in adult seat belts? If they're under four foot nine, they need a booster seat. I can't see! Are they fighting me? Oh, that's so cute. No, honey hornets don't bite, silly. They sting. Ow! For more information, go to boosterseat.gov. This message brought to you by the Ad Council and the U.S. Department of Transportation. When I found out my jeans were made using child labor in sweatshops, I wrote a letter to the company saying, reconsider your labor practices. A few months later, I get a letter back saying thanks for being a loyal customer, and they included a coupon for a 25% discount on their jeans. So I got smart, wrote letters every day to all the stores that carry the brand, asking them to stop supporting the companies who use child labor in sweatshops. And I just kept getting letters back thanking me for my concerns and more coupons for more discounts on more jeans. So I'm telling my friend about it, and she flips out, saying that between all the letters and coupons, some paper company cut down a small forest, driving off two indigenous tribes, hundreds of endangered animals, killing thousands of plant species, some of which may have contained vaccines for HIV, cancer, and syphilis. Meanwhile, the guys cutting down the trees are 13-year-old kids who work night and day for months just to save up enough money to buy a pair of jeans made by child labor in sweatshops. Saving the world isn't easy, but saving a life is. Just one pint of blood can save up to three lives. Visit bloodsaves.com to learn more. This public service announcement was brought to you by the Ad Council. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. 
Welcome back, everyone, for our last segment with Dr. Candace McDaniel. And um, you had mentioned earlier about um, an alternative remedy for um, people who were having trouble sleeping, which is sleep tea. Um, are there other kinds of alternative treatments that you're utilizing? Yes, we do a five-point ear acupuncture, uh, which is actually good for patients coming in that are in withdrawal, it does help to ease that withdrawal. It just takes about 30 minutes and uh, five needles are placed in specific points in the ear and it's it's virtually painless, uh, but it does stimulate the body to release those endorphins or endogenous morphines. And so it, it can help ease the transition uh, for a person who is in withdrawal, uh, whether they're starting on you know, a uh, medically-assisted treatment program, or when they're at the very end and are transitioning to a completely abstinent state, it can also help uh, stimulate the body to produce those endorphins. And this is, it works, you know, really in pretty much men and women and all age groups, uh, but we find it's particularly helpful for the middle-aged, let us say, to older patient whose body may be a little bit slower to get back to, um, you know, releasing those endorphins. Uh, or the patient who has uh, abused drugs for a particularly long time or uh, particularly heavy abuse. So we find that the acupuncture is uh, just really is a wonderful asset to our program. Another thing that we do that uh, is, is um, um, found to be beneficial by some of our patients is called a foot detox spa. And the thinking is, is that the sole of the foot has about a 1,000 pores uh, in each foot. And there are, you know, some substances such as methamphetamine or ice, crack. Anyway, those types of drugs which um, are made with undesirable toxins. And so the thinking is is that, you know, the, the uh, feet are placed in a warm bath of basically water that has had salt added to it and it has an electrode in it which just uh, creates a microcurrent in the salt water. It's nothing that you can feel, but between the warmth and the electrical charge of the water, the pores of the feet are opened and material comes out of these pores into the water. And uh, we kind of, you know, when we first got the unit, we kind of joked around the office you know, that um, Rick's, Rick's water was going to look like the strong coffee that he brews each morning that will grow hair on your chest and that my water was going to look like Dr. Pepper and so on and so forth. And uh, But what we do find is that by doing the, uh, the foot detox spa that people, they report uh, increased energy, and that they just feel better and that they sleep better at night. Now, we don't know, you know, why that is, and it, it certainly doesn't work that way for everybody. But uh, we certainly do have some repeat users, and the water does seem to get uh, 
less heavily covered and less flocculent material in it with repeated use. So I don't know. In the meantime, it seems harmless and might be beneficial, and so um, it's just another you know, service that we can offer, you know, to our to our patients and everything. We also try to create a very, uh, you know, a very family environment in the living room uh, with uh, nice sofas, and we have the newspaper there to read, plus magazines and, um, you know, a TV so that they can enjoy some uh, music and so forth. And in the counseling offices where it's beneficial for a patient, sometimes the, you know, lights are dimmed and candles are lit to give an aromatherapy fragrance. So we really do try to create a conducive atmosphere, you know, to where uh, well, people will just want to be, you know, and they don't feel uh, inhibited in the least about bringing their mother or their, you know, spouse or their children we have a nice little children's room uh, to the clinic that they, they feel welcome and that it's a pleasant uh, environment that hopefully is conducive to health and healing. How can people contact you? Uh, you we can be contacted over the web, and our web address is uh, addictioncareclinic.com, or we can be contacted by phone. And the office phone number is 214-328-4848. And we're located right in the heart of the Dallas Metroplex. So we're very conveniently uh, off Interstate 30 and Jim Miller Road. Um, we had talked at the break about a little bit more about counseling. Is there are you doing family counseling there? As yes, well? we do. We do uh, family and and um, counseling. And, you know, one of the things that we do is, you know, different patients have different goals about what they're there to achieve. So we try to work with the patient's goals and, uh, you know, determine what it is that they're wanting. And a lot of times, you know, we find that the patients kind of sell themselves short, and so we try to, you know, recreate uh, you know, a better and better goal for the individual, you know, as they make progress to have them set their sights a little bit higher. So, uh, you know, the counseling, they've got to identify what their triggers are. They've got to come up with a plan of, you know, how are they going to deal with the environment the next time some old bad company friends come into town or the dealer calls and they've got, you know, the great deal you know, that they never seemed to have when the patient was, you know, sick and hurting. But, you know, now, you know, since the dealer's missing that money, they seem to be able to come up with all sorts of specials, you know. And so they have to figure out how they're going to deal with these various scenarios that are bound to happen, you know, sooner or later and threaten, you know, their recovery. So it's always, and we also put out a newsletter. There's a newsletter on our website and we welcome uh, people. We have a uh, self-checklist on our website where people are not sure whether or not they have an addiction or if they would benefit from services. 
we have kind of a little checklist for them to look at, and they can even email us a free of charge, and all our consultations are free. They can email us to see, you know, if we think that they would benefit from further counseling, and uh, we, we give them, you know, either our recommendation or referrals, uh, you know, whichever is appropriate. Um, thank you so much for Daniel, and um, it sounds like you do great work in Dallas. And everybody have a great week, and we'll be in touch next week. Thank you. appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.